Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to a new Bunker Daily. I'm Roz Taylor. All my life I've been addicted to news. I could never really understand people who avoided it and who didn't want to know. Well, 2020 changed a lot of things and that was one of them. I still thrive on it most of the time, but the relentless bad news has frequently got to me too. And that's just COVID-19. The climate crisis seems a thousand times more intractable. But there is cause for optimism as well, naturally, as pessimism. And that's the premise of a new book, The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, by Paul Behrens. Paul is an assistant professor at Leiden University and he's joining me to talk about how to avoid sinking into impotent despair at the situation we're in. Welcome to the bunker, Paul. Great to join you. Well, actually, I'm in Ireland at the moment, uh, having a little, little tour around uh, bookshops uh, to visit uh, booksellers and talk about climate crisis, which is probably not what they want to hear uh, <laughs> dropping in. <laughs> A friend at Leiden recommended this book to me, and I'm really glad she did, because it's changed the way I mentally approach the climate crisis. As regular listeners will know, there's a part of my brain space devoted to Brexit, and now there's another part devoted to the pandemic. And to be honest, I was indulging in an intellectual cop-out when it came to the climate crisis. It was bad, it was very bad, but it wasn't my specialism, and I didn't think I could take it in. But you start by trying to answer the question you're often asked, do you think we're going to be okay? People know what answer they're hoping for, don't they? People, I think, they want to. They want things to be okay, of course. And what they really want, most of all, I presume, is this idea that a few technological changes will do the job, that we carry on our lives living mostly in the same way, that there'll be some marginal changes at the edges, but we'll be able to sort of substitute meat for printed meats, we'll be able to fly on electric planes, these sorts of things. And that may have been possible a few decades ago, had we acted a very long time ago. Um, but now we need just such massive changes that we need technological and large scale social changes too. Um, and that's partly the, the problem that we're facing is that these are systems level problems. These are problems across multiple systems from food, uh, energy to economics. And this means a total uh, sort of overhaul uh, of the way in which we live our lives. So what I actually have to say is pretty grim. Um, and I actually think that eventually I have no doubt that we would make these transitions, but I don't know that we can make it fast enough to avoid just massive uh, global suffering. Uh, so in the book, I've paired these chapters of, of pessimism and hope, uh, which lay out the sort of grimness for people, uh, doesn't hold back, uh, looking at our lives, how they are at the moment, uh, and what would happen if we just continue on with the small changes that we're making right now. And the hope chapters are looking at what the world would look like if we do much better and if we do things much faster. Uh, why wait to get to the better world that we know uh, we can get to? So the book is really aiming to, to tell these stories uh, of different uh, pathways we can take and give people the equipment uh, that they need to know what to push for, what to vote for, uh, and how to sort of stay uh, hopeful uh, when the uh, future uh, seems so difficult and the odds seem stacked against us. You start with an arresting story about an island off Alaska that becomes a bit of a parable for the, the situation we're in. 
Yeah, so during the uh, Second World War, some uh, Coast Guards set up a radio station off uh, an island uh, off uh, Alaska. And to make sure they had some emergency food, they took uh, 29 reindeer with them, sort of a, a live pantry. And after the war, the unit left uh, and left these reindeers to their own devices. And it was kind of a, like a reindeer utopia. There was a lich in there, lots of resources. Uh, when a biologist went back about 13 years later, he found over a thousand reindeer. And he thought, well, wow, that's interesting. That's a, a real explosion in the population. And he went back another six, six years later to see how they were getting on. Uh, and there was 6,000 uh, reindeer. But this time he noticed that there was some signs of stress. There was the, the lichen was patchy. Uh, the animals were thin. Uh, they were looking pretty ill. Uh, and when he visited another three years later, he found that there were only 42 reindeers left. Uh, and they eventually died out actually later on. And so the interpretation at the time was that this was some sort of neat story of boom and bust. But actually what happened was that in the last three years, in between those two visits, there was a historic winter storm. I mean, you know, off the charts unprecedented in that region. And so it wasn't the overpopulation directly that did the damage, but the increased stress on the environment meant less resilience during the bad times. And you can see how this might relate to today. So I use this story to start talking about carrying capacity, that the number of individuals that can survive long term in each region. And of course, we're not the same as reindeer. Uh, in fact, the carrying capacity of the planet is different for humans, depending on the way they live. So the planet could only probably support around 150 million uh, when hunter gathering. Uh, but when we had the agricultural revolution, that got bumped to at least 500 million. Uh, and today we produce enough food for 10 billion people. So really, a planet of carnivores is very different to a planet of vegetarians, and the carrying capacities are very different. Uh, so, but what's really clear is we we are overshooting the carrying capacity for our current behaviour, uh, and that we can change that. There are a lot of us, aren't there? I mean, fifty humans per square kilometre, which is a really arresting figure. You talk about overpopulation and the way that in the past people, Malthus notably, of course, have been. Uh, too pessimistic about the ability of humans to feed themselves. But that, of course, is is changing and it has to change more. You link tackling this, the, the whole problem to women's rights. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's not necessarily uh, the the number of people on the planet that's a, the really big issue. It's, it's the the way we consume things and uh, how we produce those things. You know, around ten percent of the highest income people, uh, you know, emit about fifty percent of the carbon. It, really, it's sort of the the, the consumption side of the of the ledger that's the, the issue. And actually, the human populations, uh, you know, we won't be growing much longer. Uh, many countries are actually now shrinking in population, uh, almost the majority. And the EU will actually be shrinking by about 1.4 million working age people by mid-century. Uh, the only reason why it's stable at the moment is due to migration. And, it, and it's not just in high income nations within the EU. It's actually also in the uh, regions which are still uh, growing. So in sub-Saharan Africa, which is basically the only area of the planet that's still uh, growing in population at any sort of appreciable rate, um, we're seeing massive reductions in population growth. So it took around 80 years for the UK fertility rates to drop from about six babies per woman to 4.5 babies per woman. Uh, and Rwanda has done the same recently in just five years. So the, the changes are, are absolutely rapid. And the common understanding for this change is that um, the income reduces the number of babies women have. But actually, that's not the biggest impact. The biggest impact is women's autonomy to plan their family, the control over the family budget and the amount of education uh, that they get. 
And partly that's due to the risk that women face uh, as they go through their lives. Um, because women are more uh, exposed to risk uh, than men because of the activities, the, the cooking, the, the, the resource provision uh, that they have to do. An area where you're hopeful is food, because meat is a big factor in the climate crisis. Can we really eat less of it? Well, we absolutely have to. Uh, about half of all habitable land is used for agriculture. Uh, most of that's for animals. Uh, and if you wanted to sort of design a system that pushes all the ecological panic buttons at, at once, it would be uh, modern uh, agriculture. Uh, so to avoid totally destroying the biosphere, not just climate change, but uh, water pollution, soil degradation, all these other issues. Uh, most studies uh, suggest we need three main changes, and that's to change our diets rapidly, to reduce food waste, we actually waste about a third of all food, and to improve food production and yields. And when you look at which ones can make the biggest impact, changing diets is by far and away the largest one, especially cutting out red meat and dairy. It's probably the single biggest thing any of us can do for all these multiple ecological impacts is to reduce as much as possible uh, red meat and dairy. And we are seeing progress there. Uh, I don't know about yourself, but we, you know, you've seen all of these massive growth in vegetarian and vegan options in supermarkets and in restaurants. When I was growing up, you could never get these vegetarian options in restaurants. You might you might get a, a wheel of cheese, uh, and that's a, you know about a, about it. Um, so really, uh, there's this huge interest, and and polls show that there's about a 600% increase in vegetarianism over the past few years. Uh, and actually, this is starting to be borne out in the market as well, in terms of how much interest there is in plant-based foods and how much money is going into it as well. And it's and it's a virtual circle. Uh, it's a virtual cycle. As more people eat plant-based foods, uh, more options are developed and provided on menus. And the studies show that when these are actually provided, more meat eaters are interested in the vegetarian options because they sound interesting. Because as that creativity goes into that space, there's no reason not to try those things out. I was taken aback by just how fast progress has been in renewables when you describe it. And what's enabled that to happen? Is it state subsidy or is it the speed of technological change? What's going on? It's partly state subsidy. It wouldn't have been enough had it not been for the form renewables take. So renewables are really highly modular. Instead of having one massive power plant where you put a steam turbine in and you can imagine all the machinery that goes into that and then you do that maybe 500 times, you take a solar panel and you do that by its hundreds of thousands. And that modularity really improves the learning rates, that how quickly we can get the cost down because people are constantly finding new ways to put things together, new materials, uh, new uh, electrodes, new contacts. And it's just a really, really fast process. So it's not been one massive breakthrough, but thousands of breakthrough, uh, breakthroughs. Uh, also in the supply chains, um, in terms of how we provide the solar panels and the financing for it. So, you know, overall, when you look at um, learning curves, researchers call them learning curves, uh, this is the reduction in cost you expect for every doubling of capacity. So if you look at a Model T Ford, for example, uh, for every doubling of Model T Fords that were on the road, uh, we had a reduction of 18%. 
for wind and solar and batteries, you're looking at 25 to 30%. And what it means now is that we have uh, a world where new renewables are cheaper than new fossil fuels pretty much all the way around the world, and not even accounting for the subsidies of carbon emissions. And that actually, in some cases, that new renewables are cheaper than existing fossil fuels. It's better to buy the land, install the solar panels, pay for people to do that, than to put more coal into an existing power plant. And that's just astonishing. And it it sort of revolutionizes everything that we could think is sort of possible this century. Where are we going to see the biggest growth in the next few years? Is it going to be solar or wind or even wave? It will be... so. Pretty much it's always going to be solar and wind. It turns out that if you add up all the other renewable energies available to us, that we use more than that in fossil fuels. (laughs) So we use an astonishing amount of energy and solar and wind are the only ones that can really provide it. Uh, Offshore wind on its own could provide it. uh, But of course, it's better to have a diverse uh, set of generators. Uh, So in the next few years in Northern Europe, the biggest uh, growth is going to be in offshore wind. The North Sea is going to basically uh, be populated with very, very large amounts of uh, wind all throughout the, uh, the sea and the ocean. You point out that flying is one of the biggest problems. And as you said earlier, we haven't got to the point where we can fly in electric planes yet by a long way. The airline industry has shrunk during the pandemic. That's been very, very painful for its workers. But do you hope that perhaps a positive side effect of the awful thing that is COVID-19 might be beginning to break our addiction to it? And in particular, perhaps for business travellers who do make up quite a large bulk of the emissions in terms of people who actually fly. Yeah, the biggest issue is that uh, flying is very difficult to decarbonize. It's really, really uh, hard to electrify. We can actually already electrify about 75% of our total energy use. uh, And we can make that electricity with renewables, as we just sort of said, it's super uh, cheap now. Uh, But the flying is just going to be really tough. And the vast majority of uh, flights in the UK and US, uh, when you look into the details on them, as you say, are done by uh, business uh, travellers. It was always this idea that we could do video conferencing, that 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 option was always there. But it required a shift in habits. It required an overturning of uh, existing inertia. And COVID, to some extent, has pushed that along. Whether it will stay in in a post-COVID era, I don't know. But I know that the skills and the ability for people to do things uh, online does mean that it will eat into the airline industry long into the future. The other thing to sort of bear in mind there, and you mentioned it in in the question, is that it is painful uh, for workers. And many of the transitions we have to undergo are so fast that we really need to think about those workers. And this is what climate justice is all about, is you know, thinking of the people who have very hard uh, livelihoods, farmers, coal miners, uh, people on uh, working for uh, airlines. These are these are tough uh, industries, uh, and then for people to be turning around saying that these have to disappear. I mean, it, it must be brutal. So we really have to have really clever ways of redirecting the current subsidies that we're giving for damaging um, the planet uh, towards these uh, social shifts and helping people uh, to make these social shifts. Do solutions exist yet that can clean up the mess we've made? 
yeah, yeah. So we have very simple ones like trees, and we have other what's called natural climate solutions. Um, this inc- includes restoring uh, wetlands. Uh, it may even include uh, using charcoal on the soils uh, to sequester more carbon. Unfortunately, we've sort of overshot things so fast that uh, natural climate solutions can only do so much. And Actually, given the amount of wildfires that we're seeing, we can't really rely on it as much as we might have thought or might have hoped for, because clearly it, it, it's sort of the best solution. We don't have to, you know, you don't have to pay too much for it. It, in, in, it improves biodiversity, it improves uh, wilderness, it improves uh, areas for us to explore and, and enjoy, natural areas for us to enjoy. But it's not uh, going to be enough. There are other options like direct air capture. Uh, And so what this does is capture uh, carbon dioxide directly from the air uh, and pump it into the ground. This is a mechanical process. It's going to take materials. It's going to take really large amounts of energy. So we really have to limit how much we need to use them. It does look like they will become economically competitive uh, if we get a carbon price, uh, a carbon tax. Uh, But it's not going to be enough. And because they're untested uh, and they would have to be done at an absolutely eye-wateringly large scale, we need to make more effort now in mitigating. We need to make more change now so that we need to we can avoid those in the future. You draw a clear link between uh, what economists would call labour market precarity and the rest of us would call things like zero hours contracts, people not able to ha- be in stable work and inaction. Tell us about that. The problem with precarity is that it results in what's called uh, tunneling. Uh, So people can only really focus day to day or even hour to hour. Organising life becomes a huge challenge when every single factor or every single sort of uh, decision uh, is always on that short-term basis. So it it robs us of our options for thinking long-term. And so the scarcity really starts to affect the way in which we think about options in our life uh, and and options for the way in which our communities and societies uh, live. And I I think that that's been one very interesting result of COVID is that it has reduced some levels of scarcity for some people so that people can actually enjoy new hobbies, enjoy different ways of uh, living that's not this hour-to-hour rush of organizing their lives. And so the labor markets or precarity uh, just really plays into that. It just robs everybody of their ability to uh, think long-term and to act in communities like that. What's your take on Extinction Rebellion? Is their strategy the right one? I think that they're getting uh, pretty much everything right, uh, much more right than they're getting wrong. And I think uh, that they're overwhelmingly positive. Uh, One of the biggest issues with mass movements is uh, fragmentation into different groups. So the important thing is that it's a broad uh, coalition of people, which it appears to be doing well. And I think there is this big discussion about doom messaging and and sort of nihilism, this idea that people saying, oh, well, you know, look at all the damage now that Californian wildfires, uh, melting ice caps, uh, floods, uh, droughts, all of the things that are starting to hit us, you know, it's already too late. Look at look at what we've done. I mean, let's go out in a blaze of hedonism. I think that that connection doesn't hold as true as the critics suggest. And I actually think that some of this messaging is needed to push people to the fear in which they need to actually act. Uh, the research on that has been done on this science communication suggests that there's no actual right way to do this um, and that not one particular way of communicating uh, works best. 
some of our uh, research actually that's uh, in peer review at the moment suggests that there's a clear pathway from eco-anxiety to hope through uh, taking action. And that's why in the book I talk about hope rather than optimism, because optimism just assumes things will be okay, whereas hope uh, requires acting. It requires that form of action. Uh, and that action itself engenders uh, the hope. So it's another positive feedback towards a more sustainable future. The climate crisis demands collective action, which, of course, is what uh, Extinction Rebellion is good at. But that's precisely what COVID lockdowns endanger. How can we summon the necessary will and the, obtain the right impact when we have to socially distance and the government is making it very difficult, for example, to organise demonstrations? That's a really huge concern. I think that the the COVID has taken some of the wind out of the sails, uh, some of the inertia. It's also sort of sucked some of the uh, media attention away. I mean, in, in some cases, quite rightly. But yeah, climate change is not going to go away during this time. And we're going to have climate change and uh, COVID, as we're seeing in, in, in many areas of the world right now. I think the biggest danger is from the government there. The protesting, from what we know, if the protesting is done uh, with protection, with masks, if uh, protesters uh, for um, climate science or um, BLM protesters wear masks and follow the science, then the transmission rates are very low outside. But the big concern is whether this is used as an, as a, as an excuse to uh, shut down those protests. I mean, if you, if you do look at some of the recent developments, there was the UK Climate Assembly, which brought together 108 people from across the country uh, to make decisions on how best to approach the climate crisis, 93% of them said uh, that as lockdown eases, the government should make, make steps to encourage lifestyles uh, to change and become more compatible with reaching net zero. So there is this connection in people's minds that this is a huge chance, it's a huge opportunity too. You know, and one, one thing I'd say is that you know, COVID is a collective action uh, issue. Uh, so it's sort of a lesson for how we act together for one another and what happens when we do do that and when we do limit um, the suffering of people. Now, in this case, there's a lot of issues, a lot of problems um, that have been driven by the government and by leadership. I'd also say that COVID is a collective action problem as well. So it's almost like a lesson in how we can respond for each other uh, and in the community and what happens when we uh, limit uh, the suffering uh, by doing that, you know, through lockdown. Unfortunately, I think this has been undermined by the leadership that we have. Uh, and that's obviously just another important lesson uh, for voting, uh, you know, as long as people understand that this is where some of the damage has been. Well, the key thing that we can do individually is go vegan. And that message is endorsed by my colleague, Naomi, of course. <laughs> Paul, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks a lot. If you want to buy the book, it's in paperback and you can get a 20% discount by signing up to Indigo Press emails on their website. Sorry for the hard sell, but I really recommend it. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. And if you want to help us keep podcasting, you could back us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. You'll get every episode ad-free and the night before general release if we can get it finished in time. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out the details. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. 
The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>